Well, good morning, everyone. It is amazing to be here, um, yeah, to come and celebrate together. Um, we're back in Galatians 5 today, so we're concluding our mini-series. Actually, I'm taller than I think, so bear with me one minute. So now, if you've been around over the last few months or listened back to some of the preaches on Spotify, you'll know that we've worked through love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and faithfulness, which brings us least to the, um, to the last fruit of the Spirit, uh, self-control. Now, I'm going to be open with you. I was given the preach road to subject before the summer holidays. As I looked at my name against that week, I thought, oh, why does self-control land on me? And was it some kind of heavenly joke that I'm going to head off on a camper trip with my family for three and a half weeks? Was this going to be my own personal test of living quite up and close with my family? Well, I'm not going to give you those gory details, but the Lord's been giving me some, um, just like sharing his heart on self-control as I've been studying his words. So when I've been preparing for this morning, I looked back at how Paul describes what the fruit of the Spirit would look like in someone. I couldn't help but look at this from the perspective of anyone you might come across in the high street. If being asked out the list in Galatians 5.22, which fruit of the Spirit, I think most people, sorry, which of the fruit of the Spirit would you like? I think most people would think, I think I have some of those already. They might even think, actually, I wouldn't mind a little bit more joy or a little bit more love. But I think self-control might be seen as the ugly duckling. You know, the one that gets left on the plate at the end of a buffet, the dried up curled sandwiches, or maybe you agree with me, the bounties that are left in the celebration box. You know, why do I think that? Well, I think culturally today, love, kindness and peace are really up there. We see it blazoned on t-shirts, we hear it in our music, but self-control, not so much. It's unpopular. It goes against everything culture says today. It's more, you do you. But through the Old Testament and the New Testament, self-control is like cast out like a, like a fisherman on his, like, you know, the fly rod, and he's reeling it in and asking us to like grip it and reel it into our lives. So this morning, I believe God in his kindness wants us to really dig into this and be challenged. And um, you know, I'm not gonna go too far away, but we're gonna keep it to three areas. What self-control is, what it's not, then why does self-control matter? And the biggest question I had for myself was, is it even attainable for you and I? Shall we just pray? Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it brings great revelation. So I just ask that you would meet us this morning um, as, we, as we study it together now. Amen. So if you'll turn with me to uh, your Bibles or on your phones. We're in Proverbs 25, 28. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Or as the message version puts it, a person without self-control is like a house with its doors and windows knocked out. I wonder what images come to your mind as you reflect on these verses. Can I help bring it to life? Some of you might have visited my house, but up my lane, there is a derelict house. It's kind of like halfway up. 
I'm told someone actually owns this property, but you wouldn't know it. Over the last six years I've lived there, it's fallen into more and more disrepair. A few windows are smashed, and uh, basically you can see evidence of shrubs and ivy crawling into it. Basically, the garden that's supposed to be on the outside now does very much live in the inside of the house. Some of it's exposed to the weather, and I'm really pretty certain that the odd mouse or rat now has taken residence up. To me, it looks like when the owner left, it's like they forgot to lock up, or that they just left it open for the rural um, uh, community just to let themselves in. And this is what Solomon is describing in the proverb here. He describes a city without any walls. It's open to attack and with no defense. That once safe city is now extremely vulnerable. Well, why? There's literally no security. Once you, once you could scale the walls, you couldn't scale the walls, you could, sorry, only once you had to scale the walls. And now you can literally walk straight in. Take what you like. It was ruled and now it's not. It was clear whose territory it was, and now everything's up for grabs. When I reflected on the abandoned house imagery and the city walls that are no longer there, I started to wonder what the equivalent might be for us sitting on our seats today. And I think that Solomon is trying to convey is that a person without any walls, in our case, is someone that has no boundaries. We've got no defense, and we're open to attack. King Solomon really calls out what's going on. And I don't really want to have to share with you this morning as it's uncomfortably true. Solomon concludes in chapter 23 that the lack of self-control is a mark of a fool. And I tell you this is uncomfortable because a fool is someone that is unwise or not showing good judgment. Could that ever be you or I? Of course it's foolish to leave your home or city defenseless for anyone to wander in. But the reality is that every day, our thoughts and behavior, if left unchecked, we're open to attack. The city or the house being described in Proverbs 25 is unguarded and left wide open to an enemy. And King Solomon's imagery alludes to how Satan and his followers are at work in the spiritual realm, provoking and spurring us on so easily to attack. In Genesis 4, 6, it says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And in Peter 15, 8, it says, be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring tire, lion looking for someone to devour. Solomon is saying, we have personal, personal responsibility and we'd be really foolish to disregard this. Now, I've definitely experienced this. You know, when you arrive at a situation and you haven't had a check-in, it could be potentially fiery, it could be your kids at home, it could be a work situation, it could just be with a friend, and you haven't given yourself time to take a deep breath. Something's flown out of your mouth and you shouldn't have said it. A green vein is throbbing at the side of your head. I know what it looks like for me when I've said things to my own kids, which I regret. What does it lead to? It leads to more shouting, more unrest, there is no peace or unity in the household. And once you've come crashing back from that encounter, that's it. You've recognized it. You've lost self-control. There's been a breach in your emotions. It's so clear to see, as Solomon said, we're left wide open and exposed. I think it will look different 
for many of us in our life experiences, and you'll know, but I'm going to approach something with much sensitivity because at its worst, at its worst, you may be the person or first-hand witness of another person that's got lack of self-control. And, it, and it's sensitive because it could be physical or emotional. It could be domestic violence in households. It could be sexual violence, raging verbal anger, subtle words that demean and control you and your self-worth. In all those situations I described, there is a person that's lost self-control. And in all those examples I mentioned, I want you to know there's no place for it in the kingdom of God. It leads to nothing, and there's no good that comes from it. But he can today, through grace and repentance, he can lead you to a new way. So you you can imagine what exercising self-control looks like and leads to. It is all of Galatians 5, all the things we've been talking about. It is love, it is joy, it is peace, it's patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. All of who Jesus is. Don't we want to see it in our homes and our work and our families? I do. Now, having looked at what self-control is, let's take a quick look at what it's not. Biblical self-control. Well, it's not keeping the immaculate diet. It's not working out every day. And it's not not letting yourself off. Although being healthy is a great thing, self-control isn't a form of self-punishment. And it's about looking to God's will for our behavior and our attitude and choosing that rather than choosing to give in to what our bodies say and our sinful flesh cries out to do. So, does self-control matter? I think it really matters to God. It might be the last fruit that's listed in Galatians 5.22, but it's equal to all the others. And when we live by the Spirit, we reflect the God that's created us, who loves us, and I think it's like a mirror When we're living like that, we reveal something of the spirit to other people. I'm sure all of us at some point in our lives have felt the pain or consequence of someone's lack of control. In small or big ways, we might even be living today in the legacy of that in our families and friendships. But I believe God wants us to wrestle with what that that self-control might lead to, and lead to being the the thing we're going to cover in a minute. What could unfold in our lives and your lives with this character of God when we usher it into our lives? Now, if you can imagine when I'm preparing this, I'm feeling like I might invite three people up to do a quick like scenario of what would you do in this situation? But you'll be pleased to know that uh, I definitely am not going to do that. I'm going to illustrate it with three extremely good characters in the Bible. I think they really illustrate it brilliantly. I'm going to kick off. Let me introduce you to our first person. And you'll know him more famously as the man that was given a robe uh, of many colours in Genesis by his father Jacob. Now Joseph, he lacked control back when he was 17 when he decided it was fitting to share his dream with his brothers that one day he would reign all over them. Well, let me tell you, it didn't go down too well. We know that brothers came up with a quick plan to get Joseph out and Joseph found himself on a very difficult journey. However, rolling on into Genesis 39, and he's about 30, well, he's in Egypt, and he finds favor with an officer called Potiphar. He's the officer, sorry, the officer of Pharaoh Potiphar, and he's the captain of the guard. Now, Joseph was completely like blown away, probably, promoted very quickly in Potiphar's house, as Potiphar sees the favor of God on him. 
Potiphar trusted Joseph. And it says in Genesis 39.5, From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Here we see where Joseph's being led. We see him carrying the favour and the whole household prospers. Now, just on the horizon, looms a big crossroads for Joseph. And we're told in chapter 39 that Joseph was a pretty handsome chap in form and in appearance. And someone had noticed this. It's Potiphar's wife. She was the lady of the house, and she pretty much commands Joseph to come to bed with her. Ah, this is everyday TV drama, but it's right in the Old Testament. What does Joseph do? His master's not in the house and left him responsible for everything. And he doesn't even concern himself why he's out. He trusts Joseph. And yet, the lady of the house, Potiphar's wife, is demanding him to abuse the master's trust. I want to circle around this, what Joseph was dealing with here. Potiphar didn't just, Potiphar's wife didn't just ask once. She pursued him day by day. It was temptation at the max. He must have thought, well, no one's watching. Would once just hurt? I don't know whether he thought that. It's not in the scripture, but I'm, I'm imagining it, it must have been. But Joseph refused this, and he did right before the eyes of God. So what did that moment of self-control lead to? He dared to say no to the lady of the house. And then she goes and tells Potiphar a lie, Potiphar a lie that Joseph actually tried it on, and he gets slinged into prison. Wouldn't it have just been easier just to say yes to her? What we know is Joseph chose God's way and to be led by the Holy Spirit in self-control. The choice he actually makes leads to the abundant provision for the whole nation and ultimately restored the relationship with his own family. I think it's really important for us today in 2023 to see that sometimes things get harder before we see the fruit of our self-control. It's often not a quick win. It's often deferred. And sometimes we see it many, many years later in our friendships, in our marriages, in our, in our work life, in our careers. But God is faithful. And when we choose his way over our own, he is sure to keep his promises. Okay, up next is another famous Joseph. And we meet him in Matthew. We're now in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, everyone here will know the story of Jesus being born and who he was born to. But let me just set the scene in Luke 1, that Mary is met by the angel Gabriel. And she is told she's found favour with God and will conceive her in the womb and bear a son who shall call Jesus. Now, Jesus was betrothed to Mary before he knew of any of this. And betrothal in biblical terms was the period of engagement preceding marriage, a binding contract, and sealed, where they exchanged gifts between families. It was good as done. Couples didn't live together. There was no sexual relations. And basically, it was treated as marriage, so infidelity was seen as adultery. Again, I, I just like, wow, this is something else we might see on a Netflix drama. Joseph is hearing his wife is pregnant. He knows it can't be him. Da, da, da. It says in Matthew 1.19, he resolves not to put Mary to shame, but to divorce her quickly. 
He's at his own personal crossroads. And we don't get to see how Joseph reacted in that moment when Mary dropped that bomb, she was pregnant. But I sure can imagine he was conflicted. In the context of Joseph's time, no one would have questioned him just throwing her out, making a public spectacle of her, shaming her in front of the whole community. Yet we don't read any of this. In fact, what we see is the opposite. He restrains himself. He, he treats her with dignity and care. In fact, we read in scripture, it said he was a just man and was compelled to do the right thing by Mary. Well, as we know, it ends up that Holy, the Holy Spirit meets Joseph in his dream and tells him, do not fear that God is in this. So he wakes up and he does as the angel told him to do and took Mary as a wife. Jesus chose, Jesus chose, sorry, Joseph chose to be led by the Holy Spirit and he gets to be part of God's salvation plan for the world. Now, I said there was a third example. And in this, we're going to talk about Jesus. Throughout his 30 years of life, he lives a life of self-control, submitting to his father's will and not his. We read of tests, 40, years, 40 days of wilderness that we heard about even last week. Jesus praying and asking God in the Garden of Gethsemane, does it have to be this way? Mark 14, 36 said he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. In his humanity, Jesus knows what's coming, and he asks God to remove the cup of wrath from him, the judgment of our human souls. Yet we know Jesus does choose to take the judgment meant for us, and he dies on the cross. We know he was ridiculed, he was heckled, People were saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. His disciples, mother and friends were there watching him being mocked. How does he not step down? How does he keep that self-control? How does he stop himself literally going right up to the scribe and Pharisee's face saying, I told you I was right. I, I don't know, but he doesn't. But he did say the will of the Father. And it also says in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Instead of the satisfaction of right there and then with the scribes and mockers, he chose the joy of what was to come. He looked forward to the joy he would see when his people would be saved and enter into heaven and into the fullness of joy of our Heavenly Father. Jesus is the perfect model of self-control and obedience to the Spirit. And what does it lead to? It leads to salvation and it leads to freedom. We've covered three different very workings out, three very different workings out of the self-control, but all of them lead to God's will being done in very, very different circumstances. And as I work through this, I'm thinking, oh, the bar feels really high. I've wrestled with myself. Does this self-control, is it, is it possible for you and I in our everyday lives? So if you're with me, we're now on the third question. Is self-control even attainable? Is self-control even attainable? Yes. It's a big resounding yes. Is it costly? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit able to help us in self-control? Absolutely yes. 
could you just turn with me to Paul? Uh, we're going to go into 1 Corinthians, uh, num- 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 9, 24 to 27. It's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, Paul here is using the imagery of an athlete to compare self-control in the follower of Jesus. And it's a really familiar image to the Corinthians. They lived in proximity to the Ismian Games. It's kind of a less well-known version of the Olympic Games. The Corinthians would have had an idea about the athletes competing in the game. would have had to do do their absolute best to beat their competitors. They were looking for singular advantage. They would have looked at what they ate, how much they slept. They would have spent time honing their craft. They spent all the time out in the sports field perfecting that all with the focus of the ultimate goal of winning the games. Now, I just want to say, Paul's not suggesting here for us to do 20 push-ups as we roll out of bed in the morning or eat a light breakfast of seaweed broth. But what he is urging the Corinthians to do is to have our eyes focused, is have their eyes focused on a reward that doesn't perish. Hello, I'm back again, right. Okay, right, let me start again. What he's urging the Corinthians to do, and us today, is have our eyes focused on the reward that doesn't perish. that now on brilliant okay so that the um the winner was crowned with a perishable wreath it was a crown made of foliage foliage i mean in the 90s in sports days i definitely we had those we were running around as romans and trojans and you know we had these things but paul was very clear that for you and i we need to run towards a goal of an imperishable crown a heavenly reward that will never pass away eternal life the athlete has to have an element of self-control to do the hard work to beat their competitor. Now, you and I don't have a neighbour as such to compete against, but we do have our own selfish desires. I mentioned to you earlier that self-control is unpopular in our culture. And it's really because no one really wants to admit that self-control really goes to the deepest part of us. It's our hearts. And in Jeremiah 17:9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond, beyond cure. Ouch. That is the truth here, guys. But the truth is, for our hearts and, and minds this morning, self-control, it isn't possible without the humility and self-awareness to actually accept the state of our hearts as they are. 
And I know this to be true. I went through a stage of being quite bitter and really cross about a choice I chose. And that was to leave a job I really held in high regard so I could actually be more present for the kids. Now, knowing that I made that choice and what I needed to do, after that choice, I thought, well, it's done now. Oh, can I tell you, that's where the fun began. After the decision made, I went through a real period of wrestle. I actually really struggled as my husband's career went flourishing ahead. I'm ashamed to admit, but the narrative would start like this. It would start with a good old pity party for me and woe is me. Then it would move to bitterness and then the outburst would come out of nowhere. I must have been crazy to live with. I'd just give one word answers sometimes or snap or just have an outburst of anger. I wish I could say it was all done and sorted in a few weeks, but I now recognise I rejected any need for self-control. <laughs> I go on to say that actually, I think I actually enjoyed the venting. Until one day, God called it out. I was sat journaling and moaning, and I couldn't avoid it, other than realise the state of my heart. And yet, I want to tell you in God's kindness, the state that... He changed my heart, and he led me by the Spirit to new things. What are those new things? Well, they're still happening, but he really wanted me to have a peaceful home and all the other blessings that were to come. As I said earlier, many things feel hard at the time, but it's deferred, and we get to see it. God is faithful with his promises. Self-control, as it says in Galatians 5, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's from without, outside of us, and I can vouch for that. It's a gift freely given by the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's not passive. We need to actively pursue it. And it isn't a case of just having good willpower or saying no. Uh, it's really recognizing where we're at, the state of our hearts, seeking God's will for us, then asking the Holy Spirit to lead us to that. And we've seen where self-control can lead to. Wow, it's amazing in Joseph in the Old Testament, seeing God's promise and abundance provision for, Joseph, for him and his family and nations. And in Joseph in the New Testament, in Matthew, he got to witness an outpouring of God's love as the promised Messiah was born. And then Jesus, the ultimate in self-control. He surrenders to the Father and in his obedience becomes salvation for the world today, for you and I. So I am going to ask the band to come up. And I've got a few things I'd like to challenge you with, but also, and me, myself, but also I've got some prophetic pictures as well. Firstly, I think for some of us here, we might see self-control as the poor relation in Galatians 5. A fruit you think, hmm, I could take or leave that. Well, it's part of my personality. I've always been quick to anger. I've always reacted this way. Well, I believe God wants to challenge you today. It's really not part of your, part of your personality but self-control who God is and you are made in his image. Amen? I think there's also some people here that feel like they've lived like a city or house that's been broken into. You've got no healthy boundaries. I do believe God is asking today to help you set up those boundaries again. And he wants you to share your heart with people that will pray for you, walk aside you and, you know, set those boundaries up. I think lastly, 
there are those that maybe realize this morning, they've, they're realizing even now that they're running the race with the wrong reward. Perhaps even now you're struck by the fact it's you and the prize on the horizon already looks lackluster. It's already a bit faded. Tim Keller said, self-control is the ability to do the important thing rather than the urgent thing. Oh, guys, I, the important thing today is not to leave today without changing what you're running towards. Don't stay so busy and settle for the perishable crown. But ask the Holy Spirit to reveal you this morning how different life would be when you finish the race face to face with Jesus and he rewards you with that crown of life, eternal life. Well, God has given me two prophetic pictures this morning um, for someone in the room or maybe listening this morning. Um, one of them was I saw a picture of someone swallowing house keys so that no one could get into their house. And they're fearful of anyone controlling them. And God wants you to know that is not self-control. That is fear. And he doesn't want you to carry on living like that. The other one today is that I um, felt the Lord say, someone is living their life like a washing line. Everything hung out. All their shame pegged out. And people walk backwards and forwards and see it all day. And God is really able to talk to you about each one of those things on the line this morning. And um, he knows how you're feeling about when you lost control. So that's what I'd like to do. Don't leave today without sharing what's going on, what God is speaking to you about. If you are visiting today or you've been here for a long time, I want you to know there's some people you can trust here. And they're putting their hands up now if you want to pray. I'm not asking you to call uh, like stand up but you just during worship you might go and find them let's close in prayer Heavenly Father I want to thank you that you're here with us this morning I want to thank you you are full of love and grace we ask you now that you move by your Holy Spirit and reveal your heart's desire for us we ask you that now Lord come Holy Spirit Amen <laughs>